morning, everyone. Just want to make a couple housekeeping announcements before we get started this morning. Um, the rules of decorum do apply here today. So that means please silence your phone and keep them in a place that they can't be seen from the bench. Um, no photography or recording unless prior authorization has been obtained by the court. Um, and no food or beverage, and that includes water and chewing gum, please, today. Um, other than that, I did want to inform you that we are live streaming today. So where it is, is it comes from this podium right here. So on this side, um, it might see part of your tie, sir, but it only sees the front row, but just so everyone is aware. Um, other than that, prompt court will be beginning promptly at 9 o'clock. Thank you.
morning. We have two cases for argument this morning. Uh, Woodard versus the state of Minnesota and in the matter of Midway Pro Bowl. Um, we'll take Woodard first. Ms. Nelson, you've reserved 10 minutes for rebuttal. Please be seated, everyone. If I'm sorry if I didn't say that. Um, you may proceed when you're ready. Good morning. May it please the court, counsel. I'm Julie Nelson and I represent appellant James Woodard in his appeal from his conviction for first degree murder. Mr. Woodard, Woodard was wrongly convicted after he was deprived of his right to a fair trial where he was not allowed to present evidence that Thomas, Wright, Thomas Rice was an alternative perpetrator. The issue for this court to decide is whether the district court committed reversible error by excluding the evidence that had an inherent tendency to connect Thomas Rice to the murder of Davidian Hoskins. Excuse me. For alternative perpetrator evidence to be admissible, all that is necessary is a threshold showing that the evidence sought to be admitted has an inherent tendency to connect the alternative perpetrator to the commission of the charged crime. A threshold showing is something more than a bare suspicion. That's it. It's a threshold. We're not talking about preponderance of the evidence or clear and convincing evidence or proof beyond a reasonable doubt, just threshold showing. Woodard clearly established that, and therefore the district court was wrong and erred and abused its discretion when it denied Woodard's request to introduce this evidence. First of all, and most importantly, Rice fit the description of the shooter. Now, this is really important because this court has said time and time again that when the alternative perpetrator or the alleged alternative perpetrator matches a description of the shooter or the, whoever the, crime, the offender is, um, that is evidence that the alternative perpetrator is connected to the location of the crime. So we have that. He matched that description. We also have evidence, though, and that's not enough, and I, I'm not suggesting that it is, but we also have then have evidence that... Counsel, um, let me just stop you there, because I have a question. Do we look at this evidence as it's presented to the district court and not as, you know, the entire trial happened? Because we're looking at an abuse of discretion. And so I'm wondering, are we, do we look at the facts as presented to the district court or do our cases show that we've looked at everything that's come out at trial? I think the cases show that you look at what the district court had to look at as it was presented to them and whether or not they abused the discretion. That seems to be the way the cases work. And in this case, the district court clearly used the wrong standard. It, the court, um, misstated this court's holding in two important cases, Ferguson and Blom, and said that in neither one of those cases did this court decide that alternative perpetrator evidence should have been admitted when that is exactly the opposite of what this court had held. When did the dis district court make this decision procedurally? Well, there were several times throughout the proceedings, pre-trial and then during trial, that the court made the decision. So um, just to be clear, there were, several, there were several times that they had discussed it, and the court kept bringing up this idea of, well, wanting to find out what is the foundational um, uh, reason for, for presenting this. Finally, and this was 
before or during, right during the first, uh, one of the first witnesses, um, transcript page is 785. So we're well into the trial at this point. And the judge says, there's absolutely no evidence that puts Mr. Rice at the scene. There's no good faith basis for arguing that he was present at the scene. So we can't just have an irrelevant stuff introduced. These cases, this, there's case law in both Ferguson and Blom of much stronger connections between the supposed alternative perpetrators and the crime and yet upheld not to allow it. And that simply is wrong. But then interestingly enough, um, later on in the trial when the uh, defense attorney was uh, talking about evidence that he didn't want to come in about motive because it was going to be seen through this very specific prism of only motive for Woodard and not for Rice. Um, the judge said, well, aren't you going to try to connect Rice to this? And the defense attorney said, well, no, Your Honor, said we can't do that. And this is on page uh, 1701 of the transcript. And the court says, well, I didn't deny alternative perpetrator evidence and then pulls back and says, well, I guess I did. I, I held that there was not sufficient foundation to allow it since Mr. Rice has not been connected in any way to the date and the place of this crime. So the court itself seemed confused with what its holding was, but it was very clear that the holding, that the court, court's ruling was not to allow alternative perpetrator evidence. And again, the court's ruling was wrong and error was error because there was evidence to connect him. The fact that Thomas Rice looks just like the shooter, has the exact same characteristics as the shooter. And we're talking about characteristics of the shooter. We're talking about a shooter who is wearing a baseball cap and a hoodie tied snugly around his face. So all that anybody could have seen from the shooter is really just the front part of his face. That's it. So, well, counsel, I think though, you know, when I look at Ferguson and, and your claim that the, the district court applied the wrong standard, it does seem like the district court relied heavily on uh, the fact that the defense could not put um, uh, Mr. Rice at the scene. And when I look at Ferguson and Atkinson and Troxel and that whole line of cases, here's what I get out of it. And I wonder if maybe your read of Ferguson is a little too narrow, that you you, it isn't sufficient that you put the individual, the alternative perpetrator at the scene, but that that's kind of a bare minimum. A lot of the cases say, you know, we've never held that presence alone is sufficient, but but you've got to at least establish that, put, in, put the person at the location, but then you have to do more. You've got to put the person and connect the person with the crime. And and you're right, I think the district court kind of goes a lot of different directions, but at the end of the day, what I think the district court said is, there's not even presence, you don't have that. And other than the fact that there's some similarity between the two individuals, there's nothing else. There's nothing like what we had in Troxel. There's nothing like Blom where, you know, he had on the exact kind of same sweatshirt. He was talking about, I committed, I may, have, I may be going to jail. People put him uh, in, the, in the store, Mr. Blom. And that's the district court's concern here. And so I guess I, my question in all of that is, um, are you reading Ferguson a little bit too narrowly? Because at the end of the day, it seems to me, presence is kind of a, is the bare minimum, and then you've gotta have more. And there was not a lot more here, um, other than other than maybe the, 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 the similarity between the two. I, 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 just, I respectfully disagree with your honor. Um, 
I think for I don't I don't believe I am reading Ferguson too narrowly. I think Ferguson is very clear. And again, we don't when we're talking about this threshold showing, it can be a lot of different facts that will connect the alternative perpetrator. The fact that there is a similarity in physical characteristics is significant. Not only significant that um, Rice looked like the shooter, but Rice and Woodard look alike, especially given how how limited of, of the facial um, features that were actually seen. He, Rice lives in the area. Rice disappeared following the shooting. Shooter, but shooter. counsel, those things, again, if you look at the case law that he lived in the area, how does that connect him to the crime? That he left the scene? Um, as the district court said, he may have left to go visit relatives. Um, that doesn't do anything to inherently connect him to the crime. I understand, except that this court in Ferguson found the fact that the alternative perpetrator had been arrested several days earlier for a gun possession and then was out of custody at the time of the shooting did help show that there was a threshold. Yeah, but in Ferguson it also says that um, that the so there was a similarity in the physical description. Uh, there was the alternative perpetrator's vehicle matched description of the shooter's vehicle. The alternative perpetrator's nickname matched that of the shooter, and the alternate alternative perpetrator had a connection with the victim. So I think, to me, what I'm hearing is maybe taking uh, one of those facts in, in isolation. So maybe if you can help sure. expand that, that'd be helpful. And I, I just want to correct one, one, issue, one, one fact with that. Some, the, in Ferguson, the connection between the alternative perpetrator's vehicle that the, that the alternative perpetrator owned and that a description that it matched the description of a car scene was only by some of the people, which would suggest that it also didn't match. So I don't know how strong that, that particular fact was. Um, but um, in addition, what we have here, which is the really important part, is that Rice had the exact same motive to commit this crime as Woodard did. But, counsel, you don't get to motive until you establish the foundation because the case law makes it clear that it's a two-part two test, that you've got to establish, establish that foundation that something inherently connects them. And then when you do that, you can bring in motive and all of the other issues. And so you don't really get to the motive until you until you establish that foundation. And, and I think the district court was saying here, you haven't established that foundation. I, I still disagree. I, I, the, the fact that he looked just like the shooter and could pass for the shooter, and keeping in mind that nobody was shown a lineup in this case, that puts him, that is evidence of presence at the scene and at the time of the crime, and then the motive connects him to the murder and to the victim. And, yeah, and as I'm looking at Ferguson, that's how Ferguson analyzed it. The motive can go to the foundation. Yes. After, with the bare, again, this is a threshold. We're just talking about a, anything above a bare suspicion here. So the fact that he looks like it, that is, I agree it's key that we have to put him there, but it doesn't have to be direct evidence as the state suggests. And none of this court's case law has ever said it has Counsel, to be Counsel, is there evidence. a case that where simply similarity in, in appearance we found to be sufficient? Because again, looking at um, 
Atkinson and that whole line of cases, there typically is much more beyond that, even if there is some similarity. And so what case would support that, that that's enough in and of itself? I'm not suggesting it is in and of itself. I agree with you. It's not. But when you put the rest of it together, I think you do have that. But the rest of it seems, at least to, to me, help me with it, it seems very speculative. Like, again, he, he isn't... He, he left. Somebody said he's, he's gone. He, le he has left town. Um, but see, that's the same thing that happened in Ferguson where there was... Well, but again, but in Ferguson, you've got a wealth of other, of, of other evidence, including that he had contact, been in contact with the victim three days before. He is, the alternative perpetrator's um, phone number is in her contact list in her phone. Um, you've just, you've got a wealth of other information. I th but this case, I believe that the way this court is looking at this case law, we're talking again about a bare a threshold, not a wealth of information is required. This is the defense's opportunity to present evidence. And what the state wants to do is have the jury look at all the evidence in a vacuum and say, here's only the evidence that you're going to get to see is the evidence we want you to see. And this mode of evidence is extremely important. This was not some random hypothesis that was um, advanced by the defense. This was the state's theory. The state said that this shooting had to do with the shooting of Fernando earlier in the week. And the state wanted that mode of evidence to come in, but only to apply to Woodard. But Woodard wasn't even at that shooting. But, for, but uh, Rice was. Rice was at the shooting. Rice was seen after the shooting. Rice was upset after the shooting. And Rice was seen with a gun after the shooting. You tie that together with the fact that he looks like Woodard and the shooter, that's the, the most important part here, you have an inherent tendency, just a tendency, that bare threshold to connect him as an alternative perpetrator, and the jury should have been presented with that. Had the jury been presented with this and then said, hey, we, we, we throw everything else out, we're going to throw it out anyway, and, and, and he's guilty, fine, that's a fair trial. But that's not what happened here. Council, I'm um, getting back to presence at the scene. What do we do with the uh, statement of defense counsel at trial that basically told the judge, you know, I admit, judge, we can't place the uh, we can't place Mr. Rice at the scene. When I read the transcript, I read that a couple ways. Well, first of all, um, the the defense attorney, I believe, is responding to the state's argument that we don't have direct evidence to place him at the scene. Okay, we can't say somebody saw him at the scene. We don't have proof that he was directly at the scene. Not that there wasn't any evidence, because then the defense attorney follows up with, look at Ferguson. And in Ferguson, the similarity between the alternative perpetrator and the uh, shooter was sufficient to at least give a foundation to show presence at the scene. Counsel. Counsel. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, Go ahead. On page 20 of your brief, you lay out what I believe you're asserting, your client is asserting are the seven facts showing an inherent tendency to connect. Mm -hmm. um, but just a moment ago, I heard you um, discuss maybe an eighth fact. You said that Mr. Rice had been seen with a gun after the shooting? After the shooting of Fernando. Oh, of Fernando. Yeah, the prior shooting in the week. Okay, and right. I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah. The, uh, the evidence is that Mr. Rice gave Mr. Woodard a gun. Yes. Does, does that fact cut for or against the alternative perpetrator theory? Okay, so 
Because it doesn't, to, to elaborate, uh, counsel, defense counsel at trial said that's one of the facts that shows an inherent tendency. And I noticed among your seven facts on page 20, that is not mentioned. So I wondered how you think that fact cuts. Well, to me that, you know, I, I read that, first of all, that, that fact is given by Granville Payne, who is a good friend of Thomas Rice, who disappeared after the shooting. And if Thomas Rice was the shooter, then Granville Rice, then Granville Payne certainly has uh, a motive to, to protect his good friend. Um, whether or not that gun was ever transferred to Woodard, we don't really know. That gun was never found, nor was the gun for the shooting. Whether Woodard, if that gun actually was given to Woodard, and we don't know whether Woodard gave it back to Rice or not. So, so you're I not, you're not that relying that's... on that supposed fact as part of the inherent tendency to connect? Not necessarily. I don't think I can. Okay. I, I, I don't know that that's... I, I think that's a fact that could have easily been dismissed by the jury, but I think that more importantly than going to inherent tendency, this is getting more into the argument of harmless error. So if you decide that there was an inherent tendency and we start talking about harmless error, whether or not the evidence should have been admitted, then that go, would go to that fact, because I'm sure the state would argue, well, hey, a gun was given to Woodard. But again, I think given the... Um, suspect nature of that testimony, where it came from, who it came from, when it came, which was two months after the shooting in a parking lot to the detective, kind of an offhand comment almost, um, almost to, it seems to me to um, mislead the investigation, that that would not have led this to be a harmless error. Um, and then just talking in general about the harmless error part of this, if this court does decide that this evidence should have been admitted, um, we have to look at the eyewitness testimony, this alleged eyewitness testimony. To say that the testimony was highly suspect is an understatement. We have three kids who came forward and said, it was my client. Okay. But a couple problems with that. The three kids said it was my client after... Lisa Hoskins showed them a picture in a video and said, is this the man that killed your dad? And they said, yes. And that's all they were given. And if you look at the video of the shooting, and I would refer this court to exhibit 114 because that's an enlarged video, and you go through it slowly, and I'm not saying this is easy to watch, but there's only one of those children who actually got a good look at the shooter and that was Kanaira. She was facing her father when the shooter came up behind him. She saw him. Tequila was not facing the shooter and did not turn around until after the shot, and when she turned around, the shooter was already turning around, so she never got to see him face on. And the same thing with Delicia, who was three parking spaces over and in the back seat of another vehicle. She only saw him from the side. She even testified she only saw him to the side. So all of these descriptions, when you start talking about these descriptions, it's kind of like this funnel. And all the stuff swirling around at the top, what did he look like? The police come into Lisa Hoskins' house after the shooting and says, tell us what he looked like. Tell, kids, tell us what he looked like. And they start telling, well, he had light skin, or he was wearing this, or he was wearing that. And all these adults started yelling out other descriptions. So they immediately start to blur what they remember and what they hear. Counsel, um, I did look at the video, but I didn't look at it with that in mind, where the kids were, so I will do that, and that's, I appreciate uh, being alerted to that, that's helpful. Um, but, um, and I think there, there are some real concerns with the, um, 
you know, the, the credibility of the kids given what all, their testimony given what happened. But what about Mr. Robinson? I think it's Mr. Ro it's Robinson mm -hmm. um, who ultimately identifies your client as the shooter and he goes and talks to Mr. Woodard, or the, the, shooter. the, the shooter, excuse me, thank you. Mr. W uh, the, the shooter by the garage. They have a couple of conversations and he's looking at him square on, dead on. And he ultimately says it was Woodard. Now he gives some other, you know, he goes back and forth with the cops for a while, but, um, and he gets a deal. But he ultimately says that your client was the shooter and he sees him square on. Isn't that sufficient uh, to make this harmless error? No. Because, first of all, it's accomplice testimony, so we have to have other evidence that would support that. And again, I don't think the children's eyewitness testimony does that. Secondly, um, Robinson is, is a horrible, horrible witness. Yes, I believe he knows who the shooter was, but he's arrested. He goes in to, to give a statement, which he lies at. He lies during the first statement completely. And then he's placed into custody. And when the when officer, I think it was Clond, was asked, well, why was he placed into custody? But that all goes, um, the jury would be making decisions about credibility um, and whether they believe him or not. I mean, that's a different question. It, right, but if you're given the alternative perpetrator evidence on top of that, they might find that he wasn't uh, credible. If all you have to look at is Woodard, it's Woodard or it's somebody else in the world, that's a harder uh, selection for the jury, but when it's Woodard or, hey, we believe that it's Rice because of the co commonality between how they looked and the Counsel, motive. can I ask you, this goes to maybe the, the jury instruction issue, which I'd like you to touch on before you sit down, but what in your view was the jury, I'm thinking of the letter, the email that the juror sent to, to the district court after the trial is over, and it clearly suggests that the jury was struggling with something. What do you think they were struggling with? Because my thought was, how could they be struggling with premeditation? He walks up, the shooter walks up behind the guy and after watching, looking, there's planning, there's thought, there's, you know, there's all of that and shoots him in the back of the head. If that's not premeditation, I don't know what is. So are they struggling with identity or what do you think they're struggling with? What do you think that email is about? I believe they were struggling primarily with identity would be my, would be my, spec, my guess on that. Um, and you know, they, I think that the, it was the jury foreperson and what she actually says is, the state didn't have a lot of evidence. They didn't have a lot of evidence against Woodard. They really didn't. And this was very hard. The defense, she said, had uh, presented some reasonable doubt. So again, you you, this was not an open and shut case. This was, not a, this, was, this was a close call. And so that alternative perpetrator evidence would have been extremely important to Woodard and to a determination of whether or not he was really found guilty. So that would be, that is my assessment of what that um, letter was about and about what they struggled with. Counsel, a moment ago in response to Justice Hudson, you said that, there, that the uh, eyewitness identification needed to be corroborated and that the kids' testimony wasn't enough. Could you elaborate on that? I have in front of me, um, a case we handed down just a few months ago, Derek Smith, and it says all you need is to corroborate an accomplice's testimony is something weighty enough to restore confidence in the truth of the testimony. D don't the kids' eyewitness IDs do that? N not under the circumstances. Not because they were presented the night of the shooting with a picture saying, is this the man that killed your dad? 
And when, when you look at the video and you can see that really only one of the children actually saw the shooter. Um, well, isn't that one enough to corroborate an accomplice's testimony? No, because she even, her testimony, where we started, again, if you look at this in a funnel in terms of where we start with all the identification, as this case went on from the time that um, they first started taking identification details at, at the night of the shooting to the corner house, to the trial, it comes down to this really nice, everybody agrees that it was a light-skinned black man of a mile, of a um, medium build, and he had gold teeth. And the thing about that gold teeth, nobody said he had gold teeth till after Lisa Hoskins presented the children with a picture of my client with the gold grill. And certainly you would think that if they had seen that, if, if, if little um, Kanira had seen that from the man who shot her, her father, that would have been probably the first thing she would say. Not that he had braids and brown eyes. And it was so momentary. You would think that, that the gold teeth would have stood out. So no, I, I, that is not sufficient. Under these circumstances, that is not sufficient. Council, uh, some evidence did come in about Mr. Rice to impeach the police's investigation. When we're considering harmless error, does that affect our consideration? No, because you, they were only given such limited information and not in the context of an alternative perpetrator. Um, there were a lot of, lot of people who were at this scene, and so there were a lot of pictures that were put up during trial of all sorts of people who had been there. So even though a picture of Thomas Rice went up, it wasn't put in the context of an alternative perpetrator um, as a possible shooter. It was just another person who was at the scene. But they put up at least half a dozen pictures of other people who were there to give the jury context of who these people were. <laughs> And I see that I'm out of time. Justice Hudson, may I answer your question about the second issue on my rebuttal? Or would you like me to do it now? I'm sorry. Okay. And what is the question? Whether or not the jury instruction, the harm, whether it was harmful or not? Yes. Okay. So um, I, I, I think my brief says it, states it um, the best. But we don't know precisely how the jury looked at this case. What we do know is that they were told, only look at the first uh, charge. Only if you find him not guilty of that can you look at the second charge. We assume that juries follow the court's instructions. Therefore, if they could only look at first degree murder, maybe some people were not in agreement that he should, maybe, maybe it was an identity issue and they found that he, they can't, it, it, he's not guilty or he should be guilty. But until they could come to an agreement on that, they couldn't even look at the second degree. And, and we know that- But, but would you agree them. though that if, you know, obviously for a first degree murder charge, all, you've got to show premeditation. Intent alone is not enough. You've got to show premeditation. How could you not find premeditation here? So that's what I'm getting at as well, is how could this not be harmless error when you've got, they, they see a video of somebody walking up behind someone in sort of execution style, just shooting them point blank in the back of the head after he's been watching them. So there's not a, it's not an impulsive you know, thing going on. He has been watching the victim for several minutes. I, I, I can't argue with you on that one, Your Honor. Um, I think that that would be clear that it was premeditation, but we don't know. And you don't get there. It would have been almost error for the district court to give a second degree instruction. Except that we it? don't know what they discussed. All we know is that they were told you can't look at the second charge till you know the first one 
and therefore maybe the jury would have said, well, we're going to find him, we're going to split the baby and find him guilty of second degree instead. Thank you, counsel. Thank you. You have 10 minutes for rebuttal. Mr. Schmidt. Please the court, counsel, John Schmidt, Assistant Hennepin County Attorney on behalf of the state of Minnesota. Appellant was convicted of first degree premeditated murder for the execution style killing of DH in front of his children and his niece. The trial court did not abuse its discretion in excluding the alternative perpetrator evidence because appellant could not be inherently connected to, or the alternative perpetrator could not be inherently connected to the commission of the murder. In addition, the now challenged jury instruction did not affect the appellant's substantial rights. The video, the evidence, the video evidence, the police investigation, and the witness statements established that TR was not at the scene of this murder. If TR was not at the scene, he cannot be inherently connected to the commission of this crime. The proffered evidence to the district court. So, so what is your authority for the claim that he needs to be connected to a physical presence here? Uh, the, the precedent of this case, uh, of this court, goes to uh, a number of different things that uh, mere presence is not enough, but at a minimum, and in State versus Williams, which is a 1999 decision of this court, says in all of the cases there has always been some direct evidence placing the third party at the scene of the charged crime, and that's at 234 of State versus Williams. So, so the physical similarity that has been discussed in the previous argument is not enough in your view? It's not enough because unlike Troxel, Blom, and Ferguson, uh, the investigation didn't s stop at that initial description. What you had in Ferguson was uh, an initial description and a shaky photo lineup. Uh, there was no direct testimony saying, that's the person right there. Uh, in this situation, we do have that testimony. And so if it were only the initial description that was given immediately following the murder, then Appellant's argument would be much stronger. Why, why do we consider the state's evidence in, in considering whether this threshold was met? I mean, typically that would not be the case. You would just say, well, is this relevant to prove something a little bit or not? So why should we even consider the, the state's evidence here instead of just saying, well, he looks like it. He, there's, there's enough there to get, it on, get him on the scene. And then maybe there's a probative versus prejudicial argument to make. But does that, I, that doesn't, just seem, doesn't seem to make any sense that you'd actually consider the state's evidence. Be, because that's, that's not enough with that initial description. The investigation didn't stop at that initial description. But, but why should we consider whether the investigation stopped or not? Because that, that goes to that threshold requirement of whether he's inherently connected to the so, commission of this murder. So let me ask you a, a, a hypothetical, change it a little bit. Say that this murder happened inside a house and the if information that we had was that the person had access to a, a weapon, the alternative perpetrator, the alternative perpetrator had a key to the house and kind of knew the house and um, had a motive not just of kind of hatred for the victim but a monetary motive as well. But you couldn't place him at the scene. Would that be enough? If in that scenario you're getting a lot closer to what you have in- But there's, but he, there's no direct evidence that he's at the scene. 
it, that scenario gets a lot closer to Troxoblom and Ferguson, where you don't have so a you don't direct need, identification. So you don't need direct evidence at the scene? You do need direct evidence that the person's at the scene. Well, that's what I'm saying. There's, there's no evidence that he was actually at the scene. But so in your hypothetical, uh, what you have is a, a, a description of all the sort of surroundings of that commission of that crime. No, you just you know that he has a. You just know that he has a key to get in the house. What? What? I, I don't think there's any facts that tell you that he was at the scene of the crime. Sure. And so the difference between your hypothetical and this scenario, your hypothetical gets a lot closer to Ferguson, where you have a situation where you have. Uh, uh, you don't have direct evidence saying this is the person who committed that particular crime. This is a person who did the commission of this crime. Okay, and that's, just, so I, if you don't have anybody saying this is that person, then, then you're into a situation where we're not entirely sure who committed that crime. And so you're basing it upon circumstantial evidence of who was that person who was involved in the commission of that crime. Here we don't have, there, we're out of the world of circumstantial evidence because we have direct evidence of uh, two of DH's daughters, his niece, and ER, who all but, said, But this why, is why that, I guess this comes back to my question, why is that relevant? I mean, if it's just a threshold issue, I mean, we would never consider that in any other context. <laughs> Well, because, well, here, not only that, we have the defense counsel saying, I can't put him at the scene of the crime. So that's, that's far against what the argument is uh, on an alternative perpetrator, because he admits, I can't put him at the scene of the crime. You have a video that shows all the people, and the decedent's sister identifies all the people at, who were at uh, the commission of this particular crime. So you, but you could, you could actually convict a defendant. So if the state introduced the evidence that I just talked about, or the evidence here, Say the state came forward and said, we think Rice is the murderer. And we can't put him at the crime, but we know he has a motive. We know he was involved in this other shooting. We know he lives nearby, and we know he had access to a weapon. Should we not let the state proceed with that case? It, well, it depends on the circumstance of that case, but if, if that were... The circumstances of this case with regard to Rice. If the circumstances of this case with regard to Rice, if you had three children identifying that Rice is the shooter and you had ER saying, I talked to Rice. No, that Rice, you, you had these right? exact facts. Right. Under those exact facts, then we have a different scenario. You have to remove those identifications from this fact. On these facts, he probably could have been charged with aiding and abetting because he handed the gun to Woodard and he had a motive and he knew what Woodard was going to do. So he probably could have been charged with aiding and abetting. We have a circumstantial evidence case in the future where you have someone where, you know, there's some witnesses that kind of on shaky evidence but identify someone, but the state actually, the police actually think it's someone else and it's facts similar to Rice we should say that state can't, that, that case can't go forward at all. You can't even introduce this evidence. If, if you have the shaky identification and you have the police saying it's TR and not Woodard, uh, and you have that scenario and you remove the eyewitness identifications, then we're into a Ferguson type. I don't want to remove the identifications. This identifications that they made. Identifications of the that it's not that it's Woodard and yeah. not Rice. Well, if we're into that realm, then 
maybe the alternative perpetrator defense has a I'm, stronger argument. I'm not asking about the alternative perpetrator defense. Could you bring, could yes. the state bring a, a case against Rice? Yes, we could. And then potentially in that scenario, the alternative perpetrator defense is stronger. But in so why is that fair that you, that the state can, based on this same evidence, can actually introduce all this evidence and actually convict someone? but the defendant can't. Because we're not in that land where we have identifications of one person and saying it's, it's somebody else. What we're in is a I land I think you're just of, talking around me, so why don't we just move on? Well, counsel, I'll, I'll uh, divert you uh, with a hypothetical. Let's say the facts are, there are only two alternative perpetrator facts. One, that the proposed alternative perpetrator, in this case TR, looks similar to the person accused. And number two, the alternative perpetrator has a very strong motive and in fact announces the motive and says, I hate victim and in the next few days I'm gonna kill him. So you've got, all you've got is physical similarity and an announcement of motive. Is that enough to um, get an alternative perpetrator defense in front of the jury? In, in this hypothetical, do we have the eyewitness identifications? That's, that's what really distinguishes this situation from Ferguson or even your hypothetical. So if we don't have the eyewitness identifications and we only have that initial description, then under your hypothetical, I would say yes, that would be enough. But this went Yeah, beyond. but the whole, po whole point of the defense is the eyewitness identifications may be mistaken because this is a guy, TR, who looks similar to Woodard. The, there's no question that ER's eyewitness identification was was not just about looking similar. He knows Woodard. He went and talked to him, and the video evidence is cooperation enough to get beyond that. that so no matter how strong the motive evidence, it just doesn't outweigh the eyewitness identifications. Well, again, the the motive evidence at least, at least to get at least to do an inherent tendency to connect. The the motive evidence comes in after you get to the get past that inherent tendency to connect, and that's based on this. Wouldn't, wouldn't you agree? Wouldn't you agree? Motive is part of the inherent tendency. Uh, not based on this court's precedent of Larson and Troxel, where its motive does not connect. Uh, so that's what this court has said in 2010-2016, that uh, that alone is not a connection. I'm not saying alone. Right. And now when you get into the, but that's when you get to the motive after you've put the person at the scene. And, and to inherently connect the person to this murder, he had to be at this scene, at this date and time, with a gun, and there was nobody who could do that. And so given the, the, the testimony that exists here with three uh, children, ER, which is all corroborated by the video evidence, shows that Woodard uh, is the person who committed this murder. So, and but see, this is my issue, but if the state was coming in, let's set aside the witness identification, just on this threshold issue, the state, we have cases where we've affirmed convictions of people where you can't place the person on the scene with the gun. Correct. So we let the state introduce evidence where you can't place this witness on the scene with the gun and convict people and send them to jail for the rest of their life. But a defendant can't, that's not, that, that doesn't meet a bare minimum threshold to get the information in. But, but the, the difference between those cases is then we're dealing with circumstantial evidence and we're dealing with a description of the shooter. And if all we had here was that initial description of the shooter from the children, and that description occurred immediately after they watched their dad die, when their uncle die, and so, and you can see their reaction on the video, which is very hard to watch. 
And they go back into the house and immediately after that, they are talking to the police and trying to give a description. And the police testimony shows that they are not trying to get a full interview. They're trying to get something that they can put out so they can try to find the shooter who's at large. When you're dealing in that circumstantial evidence world where it's all we have is a description, then, then that's a different sort of scenario. And if that's all that we had here, the alternative perpetrator argument is a heck of a lot stronger and, and probably would have been an abuse of discretion to exclude it. I, I guess but we the, have a lot more I guess the, the, the disconnect we're having is, I guess maybe our president this alternative perpetrator rule. But I'm just trying to, and we do have this U.S. Supreme Court precedent that kind of says when you're treating the state and the defense differently with an evidentiary rule, then you're, you're treading into very tough constitutional areas. And we have cases, we have this DeRosier case. We sent Joshua DeRosier to jail for the rest of his life based on evidence that he had access to a, a murder weapon, although they don't know that it was a weapon that actually committed the murder, that he had a key to someone's house and that he didn't have an alibi for where he was when the murder happened. And we said that was enough for the state, not only to go to trial to get this evidence in, but to convict him and send him to jail for the rest of his life. And yet under our alternative perpetrator rule, the defense can't even get anything like that before a jury for them just to consider it. Why, why is that right? It's because of the differences that, that exist between the circumstantial and the direct evidence, and we have the direct evidence in this particular case. I agree with you that you shouldn't be trading the state and the defense differently. In this situation, had we only had a description of the alternative perpetrator, which is a lot like the case that you're describing, then the alternative perpetrator evidence should have been allowed. But we have a lot more than just the description of the shooter in this case. Counsel, I, I want to drill down a little bit on the discussion you were having with Justice Lillehog on the issue of motive. When I look at Ferguson and I think it's Troxel, there seems to be sort of, at least in my read of it, a temporal element to it. So in other words, you, you have to lay that inherent foundation and if you do that as defense counsel, then you get to motive and those other things. And, and I, when I look at Ferguson, it talks about, you know, once the defendant lays foundation for the evidence by proving its inherent tendency to connect the alleged alternative perpetrator to the commission of the crime, it is permissible to introduce evidence of motive. And so that's where I get the sort of temporal thing. But, but your opponent says, no, I'm reading that wrong and I'm trying to I'm just trying to get your position are you also reading that temporal connection because if motive can come in to help make the establish the inherent tendency then I think defense has a, a stronger case but I'm just not seeing that and I'm trying to, to drill down on that based on my reading of this court's precedent motive doesn't come in until that baseline foundational level well, and in is fact doesn't Ferguson go on to say that once the defendant lays foundation for the evidence by proving its inherent tendency to connect the alleged alternative perpetrator to the commission of the crime it is permissible to introduce evidence of motive yes. which to me makes it crystal clear right but doesn't it also say in particular, this is talking about laying the foundation. In particular, Jennings' physical appearance matches the description of the shooter's physical appearance and the car matches the shooter's car. Both pieces of evidence suggest he was present at the scene. Moreover, so talking about foundation and they say, moreover, the court, this court said Ferguson produced other evidence connecting Jennings to the crime, which was this motive evidence. So it seems to me that 
they're actually looking, the language that says that we can consider all this when we look at whether foundation is met. Well, based on um, Troxel, Larson, and Ferguson, I think putting all three I was just of those, reading from, of I, I agree, but putting those three cases together, motive doesn't come in until after you hit that initial uh, foundational requirement. Council, would you agree though that this, this issue of the identity, I mean, I, I'm assuming you don't disagree that the two individuals, they do favor each other quite a bit. And so- Based on, on the photos that I've seen, yes. They do look similar. But, but again, you can't stop the analysis on that initial description, which is really what appellant's argument bears down to is you, they had this initial, the, the kids had an initial description and that's similar to this TR person. And because of that, we, all this should have been left in. That the investigation didn't stop there. They didn't, at the time, the police didn't even have the video when they were getting those initial descriptions. And so you, you take the video, you take the kid's testimony, you take ER's testimony, all of which was subject to vigorous cross-examination. The defense brought in an expert who talked about eyewitness identification to attack the kid's testimony. Well, counsel, on that point, I, if we, I guess I'm just not sure how much weight we can give the kids' testimony given uh, the suggestiveness of, you know, with, uh, I think it's the mom uh, saying, is this him? Um, you know, that has all kinds of, of problems connected to it. So I guess I have two questions. How much weight do you think we can give the kids' testimony? But if we give it little to no weight, um, does the state's case hold up if all we have is Mr. Robinson? Yes, to answer the first question, you should give it weight uh, for several reasons. And, and one is I, I disagree with counsel about what the video shows because if you, if you watch that video, those kids are very close to their father when he was shot. And they had, it, it may be at the time of the exact shooting, somebody may not have been looking right in the direction, but they saw him, some of them saw him run up, some of them were watching him right after the gun was fired. And they were quite close to the shooter. If you look at uh, the testimony when it's about the kids and showing the Facebook photo, uh, the mother was trying to find the person and one of the kids said to the mom, I know what he looks like. It wasn't, it, and then the mom said, here's the photo. And so there is some suggestiveness there, but the kid said, I saw him, I know what he looks like. During the testimony, the kid said, he looked me in the eye before he pulled the trigger. That's something that, that, that comes from that child where you should give weight to that testimony. That's not something that can be just uh, pushed aside. And, and besides that, their testimony was challenged. All of the issues about the suggestiveness, the expert coming in and talking about suggestiveness and memories was challenged at trial. So I think the kid's identification should not be pushed aside. If we're only basing it on ER, uh, to your second question, uh, there is enough there because of the cooperation of his testimony. ER's uh, was cooperated by the video evidence, which is very consistent with what he said, and he went and had a conversation and went behind the garage again later, and Woodard was back there. He had no doubt in his mind that that was him. Uh, ER's also cooperated by the children with their identification. Uh, so there's enough cooperation that just based on ER alone, if you're getting into the harmless air sort of analysis, 
to affirm this conviction. Council, um, I want to ask you the question that I asked the um, Ms. Loftus, Ms. Nelson. Um, when do we, this is an abuse of discretion. We have cases, you know, with different factual circumstances and the court is making this um, determination at a particular point in time. And that's where I'm a little confused about, you know, obviously when we're looking at harmless error, we look at everything that happened during the trial. But when we're trying to see if a district court in the heat of the moment abused her discretion in admitting you know, in not admitting alternative perpetrator, um, perpetrator evidence, don't we look at just what was presented to her at the time, the, the memo, uh, the defense memo that was presented, if they've heard evidence to that point, they've heard openings, she's heard what people expect to come in. But I, I'm a little confused about how to, how to you, you know, assess whether discretion was abused um, and what we consider from the trial. I, I agree with counsel that this was an ongoing sort of discussion throughout trial. There was some pre-trial discussions about it. The judge uh, mid-trial said there's no good faith basis to assert TR was present, and that's at 785 of the transcript. But then again, at the end, at 1701, the judge says again that there's no connection to the date or time of this place. At, at that point, even at 1701, where the judge is clarifying the ruling that she had made, there was still the opportunity the judge could have changed her mind. Uh, so they could have allowed for the defense to- And that's still the state's case at 1701? I believe that is still the state's case. Uh, well, yeah. No, that is not because the defense expert testified at 1498 through 1573. So that is even after the defense's case. Uh, so even even at that point in time during the trial, there's still the opportunity that the judge certainly could have changed her mind. Counsel, I want to go back and talk about this uh, this question about motive, where um, you know the conversation is about whether or not we have a rule that says that motive only comes in later. Um, what would be the public policy reason for taking that position? And the reason I ask that question is. I think it's easy to, I shouldn't say easy, but you could certainly construct a hypothetical that um, there's a very strong motive, there's a weapon, there's a lot of other evidence uh, that shows there's an alternative perpetrator, but you can't quite put the alternative perpetrator at the scene. And under those circumstances, why wouldn't we say it's appropriate for an alternative perpetrator to, uh, alternative perpetrator evidence to be admitted for the jury to consider? At that point, there's also the analysis uh, within the alternative perpetrator of, of confusing the jury and not being based on speculation. And so if we, if we get beyond that initial thing, then we're getting into all this other stuff about motive. And so you need that initial foundational requirement that's not based on speculation uh, in order to get past that threshold before you get into the motive. Because once you get into motive, that gets to be very strong evidence that this could be somebody else. And if you're into that world, based on speculation to get through the foundational piece, that's, that's problematic. Then I, that, this takes us back to the um, exchange you and Justice Thiessen were having. Um, why are we treating alternative perpetrator evidence different than uh, the case that the states put, puts forward to convict a defendant of a crime? 
I, I don't think we are because the state can't base its evidence on speculation either. And, and that's sort of the, the heart of this, uh, is that you need something beyond mere speculation to get past that foundational requirement. And the state can't speculate on the evidence either. So in that respect, I think the alternative perpetrator rule that currently exists uh, is consistent with how the state is treated. Can, can I just, so is a key in this case for you it sounds like it's key in this case for you that there was this eyewitness testimony that the state had and somehow the judge knew about that and could consider it. Uh, because otherwise then, because that's the thing that kind of refutes the, the threshold foundation. The, in answer to a lot of my questions, you, you kept coming back to the fact, well, but here the difference is we have, uh, we have these eyewitnesses that actually put Woodard at the scene. So that seems significant to you. It is significant. And so how do you square that then with Holmes, which says where they struck down the South Carolina rule because it turned on the strength of the prosecution's case that in comparing whether you should allow this information of alternative perpetrator evidence to come in, the U.S. Supreme Court said you can't consider the prosecution's case. But that seems to be exactly what you're arguing here. So I'm trying to understand how we square those things. Based on um, this court's precedent, it's looking at all but aren't we bound by, don't we have to interpret our, our own precedent in light of U.S. Supreme Court constitutional precedent? Uh, Chief, I, I see I'm almost out of time. May I? Thank you. Um, you certainly can and have the authority to overrule your own precedent, and, but that's what you'd be doing if you're going to go down that role and that line of cases. Uh, within within that uh, realm, it is significant that we have eyewitness identification. It's significant that the defense counsel said, I can't put him at the scene. That's the pro-offer that was given to the trial court here. I cannot put him at the scene. And given this court's precedent, that that is a bare minimum, uh, the district court did not abuse its discretion in denying this evidence. Thank you. Well, hold on. Justice Hudson has a question. Uh, Mr. Schmidt, I'd like you to address just briefly the jury instruction issue. And um, as I said with uh, to Ms. Nelson, it does, it, in our discussion, it does appear to me, I'm thinking about the juror email after the fact, that they were very, uh, this juror, I should say, was very concerned um, with reaching a verdict here. And so, you know, part, part of my thinking is, well, how could they even question premeditation? But that doesn't seem to be what they're necessarily what this juror was questioning. And if she's accurately relaying what the jury was concerned about and the difficulties they had, um, I don't know. Maybe there there is uh, there's a there there in terms of um, prejudice to the to the defendant by this. What I think we all would agree, and I think you've acknowledged in the brief, was an erroneous instruction. Correct. Yes, so we have agreed that this was an error that was plain because it's it's uh, against uh, Pertin. Uh, in this court's ruling in Pertine. But there, there can be no question about, from the video evidence alone, that premeditation existed here. So if the jury was struggling, they may be struggling on a different issue of the resolving the children's testimony, resolving ER's testimony, all of that sort of struggle. The premeditation element could not be in dispute because of the video evidence of the shooter walking back and forth, going behind the garage, coming back again, standing there for a few seconds, and then running across the alley and putting the gun to the back of his head. 
So since there can't be any dispute on the premeditation piece, it, was not, it did not affect their substantial rights uh, with that jury instruction. Thank you, counsel. Thank you. Uh, Ms. Nelson, you have 10 minutes. Thank you. Um, just briefly, Justice Chudish, I'd like to address your question about when the judge um, talked again about clarifying her ruling about not allowing the alternative perpetrator evidence in at 1701. Um, just for clarification, that actually was still the state's case. Um, Jud, uh, Sergeant Darcy Clund was testifying. Um, I believe that the defense witness, expert witness, testified out of order due to um, uh, some sort of scheduling. So that actually was still the state's case when the judge affirmed her uh, ruling. So what I... So then my question would be, so in, a, in assessing abuse of discretion, is it fair game? It seems to me to look at everything she's heard up until 1701 then, which would include, you know, the state's evidence on things. You know, I, I, I don't think so, and here's why. Because the ruling was really the ruling back at 768. The uh, council district court judges change their mind, I mean, all the time. I mean, as the evidence is coming in, and if her final decision was at 1701, why wouldn't it be fair that she would consider everything up to that point when we're, when we're reviewing abuse of discretion? Well, because if she had changed her mind at that point, all these other witnesses had testified, it would have changed cross-examination. It would have changed all sorts of things with the trial. So That does happen. I understand. I understand that that does happen. Um, and then we might be here on a different issue. But um, I, I don't think that she was um, reassessing what had evidence had been brought in at that point. She was saying, oh, yeah, there's nothing that has been, that was presented to put him at the scene, which, again, was error. Um, what happened at trial and with the prosecutor and what I believe respondent's attorney is doing with this court is trying to mislead and conflate the threshold standard of admitting alternative perpetrator okay, wait a minute. evidence. Did you just say that you think Mr. Schmidt is trying to mislead this court? Uh, let me be careful with that. <laughs> I, know. Uh, I believe that the argument is misleading because it's conflating what I believe the respondent is doing is the same thing that happened at the district court, which is conflating the threshold standard required to admit alternative perpetrator evidence, which is just a threshold, with sufficiency of the evidence. Because the same thing seemed to happen here that happened at the district court level, which was where the state comes forward and says, yeah, but there was more evidence against Woodard than Rice. There's more evidence. Uh, we have eyewitness testimony. We have this. We have that. But that is not the standard. And that is, that well, is counsel, a it's not the standard. standard. I agree with you. The standard isn't sufficiency. But as I read the district court's you know, uh, discussion in your, in, throughout the, this whole thing, 
she's looking for what that standard is. And both counsels cite her to, or maybe it's defense counsel in particular, uh, to Ferguson when she says, well, doesn't, doesn't he have to be put at the scene? And defense counsel says, well, no, Your Honor, that's not the standard. And then they have some more discussion as they go on later through the trial, and they start comparing Ferguson and Blom. And, and so it's, it's a long-running discussion. But what I think at least what I got from the transcript is the district court's trying to figure out, well, how is this case similar or not similar to Ferguson and Blom? And in terms of making that foundational showing, I don't, I don't know that that's sufficiency of the evidence. I think the district court's doing what we want district courts to do, which is to say, I've got a call to make here uh, about whether I let this evidence in or not. I better compare it to, to the relevant cases and, and to, to determine what that have, whether that foundation has been met. Right, and then the district court misstated what this case, that this court's holding was in both Ferguson and Blom. And, you know, I think we have two, there are two prongs to this, this, this threshold. If you look through all the case law, we've got really kind of two prongs to it. Can you put the alternative perpetrator at the scene? There is nothing that says you have to have five things that do that, or six things, or three things. Or none of our case law says that. We just have to have something. Well, one of the things that this court has said that puts an alternative perpetrator at the scene is if he looks like the suspect. Um, so I'd like to compare this very briefly as an example to Atkinson. Okay, in Atkinson, this was a shooting that took place in the parking lot. We could actually, they could put him at the scene in the parking lot, and they could also say that he had a tattoo that looked similar to the shooter. But ultimately, that was it. And what they found out, they also determined, was that he really didn't look, other, other than that, he didn't look like the shooter. He wasn't the right height. He wasn't the right skin tone. He wasn't the right build. So he did not look like the shooter in Atkinson. Here, we have someone who looks just like the shooter, who could pass as the shooter. So we can put him at the scene. The next question is, and that alone is not enough, that only connects him to the location. The next question is, can we connect him to the crime? Can we connect him to the victim? Absolutely. We can do that through the Fernando shooting. So we do have... And that's motive. We have motive. Yeah, but I'm, I'm a little confused on the question of whether we can take into account motive in the threshold inquiry of inherent tendency to connect. And it looks like the process was laid out in the Hawkins case in 1977. And that case seems to suggest you first have to determine the inherent tendency question. And then if you determine there's an inherent tendency and the proper foundation for that is laid, then the defendant may introduce evidence of the motive. So it seems to me that you're suggesting the motive is part of the inherent tendency. But our, our case law, including the, the quotation from Ferguson, seemed to suggest to the contrary, at least there's confusion. Can you clear up the confusion for me? I, I would um, refer to uh, Justice Thiessen's argument that um, Ferguson says, moreover, these are the other things that connect him. But the one thing that did connect him was that he looked like the shooter. So I think we do have that. There's none of the case losses we can't use that is just There's no question we can, we can uh, consider that he looks like the shooter as part of the inherent tendency test. Right. But the question is, can you, can you take into account the alternative perpetrator's motive in determining the inherent, inherent tendency to connect? I believe absolutely. Yeah, because but then that, how, 
but what about what about the uh, this was all laid out in Hawkins I mean that's our seminal case and that seems to suggest that you first have to do the inherent tendency and only then may you consider motive. Well, I think the question, maybe one of the things that the question before this court is what exactly is inherent tendency then? Is it just to put him at the scene or does it have to be seen and the crime? And what does that mean? And it maybe says that's inherent tendency to connect the alleged alternative perpetrator with the actual commission of the crime. An actual commission seems to be something different than the state of mind. Okay, but that I think the fact that he looks like the shooter, that he was, therefore he was at the scene and he pulled the trigger, that's an inherent tendency to connect him to the scene and the crime itself. Okay, thank you. Um, can, I, can I just ask one clarifying question? You, you mentioned in passing, and I just probably missed this in the record, that as part of the, someone asked you about the impeachment testimony that talked about Rice, mm -hmm. and there's some reference that he was, that impeachment testimony put Rice at the scene? But maybe I misheard what you, what you said. There were a bunch of pictures of people. Oh. Um, so there were, yeah, there were, and I'm sorry, you just wanted to clarify that? Yeah. Okay, so there was, there was a lot of discussion about who was at the scene of this, of this murder. And so to clarify, um, I think it was through Lisa Hoskins, they put up a bunch of pictures to say, is this a picture of Snake? Is this a picture of Rara? Is this a picture of so-and-so? Is this a picture of Thomas Rice? So there was, that was the, I don't, it wasn't really used to impeach Thomas Rice. It was just more of in context of who are these people that we are talking about? Um, and so there was never, the jury was never presented with Thomas Rice could have been the shooter. They were never presented with that evidence. They were not presented with all the evidence in this case. Mr. Woodard is serving a life sentence when all the evidence that should have been presented to the jury was not. Had the jury seen everything and been allowed to hear that you know, really look at it and say, hey, look, and the defense could have made the argument, Thomas Rice looks like the shooter. He lives in the area. He disappeared after the shooting. Word on the street was that the shooter actually did disappear and that, oh, by the way, and most importantly, he had the exact same motive as Woodard. The jury should have been told that. They should have been given all the evidence and not just presented with the evidence that helped the state. That would have been a fair trial. Mr. Woodard deserves a fair trial. Defense, or sorry, appellant requests that you reverse his conviction and remand for a new trial. Thank you very much for your time this morning. Thank you, uh, counsel. Thanks to both counsel for the help you provided to the court in this matter. This case is submitted. We'll issue an opinion in due course. I'll call the second case now in the matter of Midway Pro Bowl relocation benefits claim. Mr. Michael, you've reserved 10 minutes for rebuttal? Yes, Your Honor. You may proceed when you're ready. 
May it please the court, counsel. My name is Peter Michael from Lavander, Gillen, and Miller, uh, and it's my privilege to represent the city of St. Paul. Good morning, your honors. A person aggrieved by the decision of an executive agency in a contested case is entitled to judicial review, not under simply 1463. That person is entitled to review, to judicial review, under sections 1463 to 1468. That phrase, sections 1463 to 1468, appears repeatedly in statute 1463 and 1464 at sequence. Proceedings for review under sections 1463 to 1468 shall be instituted by serving the agency uh, by personal service or, or certified mail. The word, the verb to effect is an ordinal word. In the sequence of things, it signifies the first thing that must happen. In uh, Dennis v. Uh, Salvation Army, uh, Justice Lillehog writing for a unanimous court, cited Merriam-Webster's and Black's for the definition of the verb to effect, to effect an appeal. Likewise here, the city cites to Miriam and to Blacks for the plain language meaning of the verb to institute. It means to begin, to originate. Therefore, under the plain language of 1463, to begin or originate review under 1463's procedures, you must first serve the agency. Uh, quoting from Blacks on the, on the meaning of the word institute, uh, both Blacks and Merriam-Webster's, Your Honor. All right. Uh, there are some other definitions of institute. Um, if you go to the common dictionaries, one would be to set an operation. One would be to start. Um, if you have a that kind of definition, isn't it possible that you can have jurisdiction under 1460.63 and then get the proceedings going under 1464? Set them in opera, set them in, in uh, operation. Um, Your Honor, simply as an exercise in vocabulary, I, I do not see a meaningful distinction between the phrases that you cited from that dictionary and the ones that that I cited. It's still an ordinal word. It's still the first thing. Uh, and in addition to that, we are under a uh, statutory regime where. The judiciary is exercising certiorari review. This isn't an appeal. This is certiorari review of an executive decision. It only makes sense. It, it fits the regime. It fits the, the context that we would start by directing service to the agency we are about to supervise. Now, I know you're going to tell me that I shouldn't do this. So we want to get that on the, on the grounds uh, right away. But if we look at 1463 by itself, do you agree that the respondent here complied with that statute? Your Honor, that's a, a troubling question to answer for a couple of reasons, but I, I will tell you um, that the respondent did serve the agents, uh, the, the, the party, uh, the city of St. Paul, within 30 days. Um, the respondent did not do the other things that sections 1463 to 1468 say, that phrase, sections 1463 to 1468, is included in the verbatim language of 1463. 
So that portion of the statute uh, respondent did not comply with. Uh, I have an unrelated question I wanted to ask you uh, sort of at the commencement of this argument, uh, and that is um, I understand your argument, and if we agree with you, um, that the um, respondent here did not comply, it's jurisdictional, appeals dismissed, cases over, et cetera. I get that. Assuming that we disagree with you, um, I don't see anything in your brief that argues that the failures on the part of respondent were prejudicial. Am I right about that? You are correct, Your Honor. Thank you. Uh, returning uh, briefly to the Dennis case, because it's this court's most recent um, uh, ruling and the subject of how the judiciary exercises certiorari review uh, over uh, an executive agency's decision, uh, this court specifically held a relator cannot invoke the right of review by certiorari without following each of the steps established by the legislature. Uh, and one more quote while I have my glasses on, Your Honors. Um, Justice Lillehog referred to the long-established principle that we adhere strictly to the statutory requirements for appeals from an executive branch agency. There's only one of us before the court today who is not asking this court to forgive or to ignore one of the procedural requirements established by the uh, legislature. The, excuse me, the argument seems to be, um, and uh, it, it's, it's a little bit difficult to follow, but the argument seems to be that by amending 1463, uh, the legislature abrogated this court's decision in in Ray JMT. Uh, that's a footnote. It's it's gone, um, and uh, implicitly uh, sub silento repealed 1464. Um, what we can learn from the legislative history um, is not much, but there are a couple of important points. Um, that I think all of us can agree on. Uh, first, in 90% of the cases that come uh, to, uh, through OAH, the Office of Administrative Hearings, the agency itself, uh, the entity with a policy interest in the outcome, the agency with a particular view of its statutes is the one making the final decision. Uh, and it's only 10% of the cases that are like this case, where the, where the administrative law judge has issued the final decision. Um, Your Honor, uh, 14, uh, Section 14.57 gives the agencies the discretion to decide by order to, to appoint the uh, administrative law judge to uh, be the final decision maker. So it could but be it's any still, case. I mean, but ultimately it's, an, it's the agency decision that the agency is going to be enforcing that decision. It's that agency's decision, say it's DHS enters to that and enters that order, right? In that so, 90%, that's correct, Your Honor. No, even in the... 10%, I mean, it's, it's DHS saying by, by 0.57 that we're going to let the OAS, the, the administrative law judge, make right. the decision in this case for us. That's correct, Your Honor. But ultimately, it's still DHS's decision, right? I, I don't know why OAH is ever an agency and why the city of St. Paul shouldn't be considered the agency in this case. Um, that's an excellent point, Justice Thiessen. And if the... Um, 
motives of the legislature were uh, to be enacted, which is we're going to treat OEH differently from the rest of the executive agencies because it really does act differently. It really does feel like, in cases like this, like a lower court. Um, so does the Workers' Comp Court of Appeals, uh, as was the case in Dennis. Um, the legislature could very easily uh, draft a set of uh, provisions in the statutes that treat OEH differently from the executive agencies. The problem in this case and with the, the rules that we have to work with in these statutes is we only have one, one rule book. We only have one set of rules um, and the legislators uh, in the scant legislative history we have recognize that. They said we have this one set of rules that applies to everything. And so what the court decides today in announcing the law for the state and reviewing what the Court of Appeals has published as the law of the state, uh, we have to have a rule, a reading of the statutes that fits um, the situation where the executive agencies have made a decision, care passionately about their subject matter expertise and the decisions that they've reached, uh, and now the courts are going to be reviewing them. Uh, respectfully, the only correct answer is what's set forth in 1464. We're going to start uh, by serving the petition on that agency. We're going to issue orders to that agency where now a court is telling them, give us your records. In this case, the Court of Appeals ordered the agency, it was OAH in this case, I understand that, but it ordered the agency to provide all of its records to the Court of Appeals before the agency had been served. Um, and it's... You know, I, I think you've correctly identified some problems here that arise out of the way the legislature amended the statute in 2013. But the thing I'm struggling with, I'm struggling with two things, and I want you to address these if you could. First, uh, subdivision 1464, statute 1464, does not contain a 30-day provision. Um, and second, um, as a matter of sort of theory and... Um, you know, how the world should work, I think you make a really strong argument about how administrative law should unfold. But someone picking up the statute book and trying to figure out how to process an appeal can't get to where, you're, where you get without um, a working background in administrative law that um, isn't required by the statutes. How, how, do we, how do we deal with those two problems? You look at the statute, 63 has a 30-day provision, 64 doesn't. That's essentially what's, what the Court of Appeals said. Um, it's not maybe a great rule, it doesn't reflect the way we, we'd like administrative law to work, perhaps, but it is what it is. What do we do about that? Um, I have, I think, three answers, Your Honor. Um, first, the statutes are integrated, and for whatever reason, uh, and this predates the existence of the Court of Appeals, um, the order, the statutes were numbered in a certain way. There's no particular reason this should be 1463 and 1464. And they all relate to the same subject matter. And as I demonstrated in my brief, they ping pong back and forth between what you must do. Um, and what's just happened uh, with this uh, amendment um, is remarkable and troubling for litigators in terms of where our heartburn lies. Before this um, uh, amendment, there wasn't a deadline to serve the parties. There was a deadline to serve the agency only. Um, and then the agency is going to identify for the litigants who the parties are. That might be two people in a case like this. That might be 300 interested parties from around the country in some environmental matter. It could be anything. But all of them have to be served now 
within the 30 days. The other thing that has to happen that does tie the, the timelines between 1463 and 1464 together, besides the repeated refrain, sections 1463 to 1468 in both statutes, this is all one thing, um, is the, um, the attorney general must be provided a copy of the petition, and this is a direct quote, at the time of service on the parties. Before the amendment, that doesn't give the litigators any heartburn. We're going to get this thing started. We're going to have jurisdiction. We're going to um, serve the parties and provide a copy to the attorney general. Now we have to do all of that within 30 days. And so the, the short answer, Your Honor, is um, the statute's substance isn't broken up by the statutory numbers. It just isn't. Uh, the second answer is the one I began with, which is to institute is an ordinal word. It's the first thing that has to happen. Uh, and so that's how the timeline is preserved. The, the, res the, the alternative is everyone agrees that the appeal period is 30 days. And then we'd be reading the law to say you don't have to institute the appeal within 30 days. The only thing that the, the legislature said is required to institute the appeal is service on the agency. Then you go to 1463 and you get an additional requirement. You go back to 1464, you get a couple of more of additional and, requirements. And so I'm listening to your discussion here and um, I'm nodding along that that's the way the world should work. I, I, I think you make a really good argument here and I don't much like what the legislature did. But it strikes me that that the universe that you've just outlined um, is a trap for the unwary um, and is not specifically provided for in the language of the statute. Tell me why I'm wrong. Your Honor, it is no greater a trap for the unwary than it was before the amendment. Um, in order to chart all of the things that are required to perfect an appeal before or after the amendment, um, a litigator might do, and I'll advise the court, this is what I did, put a number by each sentence in both of them to get what all of the requirements are and then figure out what order they go in and then, and then do it. It's before the amendment, the first thing you had to do was institute the appeal by serving the agency, uh, and you didn't know how you're supposed to serve the agency until you get to 1464. 1463, if you applied the rules of... Uh, an ordinary appeal, you would just mail service to the council. 1464 says, no, trap for the unwary. You did that wrong. You cannot separate the statutes. They must be read together. Uh, in terms of timing, um, the only thing that's left in the language, the plain language, is that the verb to institute is an ordinal word, Your Honor. I have nothing more on that. Yes, well, counsel, let me press you on that a little bit. I'm, I'm trying to harmonize 0.63 and 0.64. And one way of doing this, and let me just throw it out for your analysis, in point six three, you um, essentially start your appeal with a, um, a petition for writ of certiorari. So you get judicial review. That's when jurisdiction attaches. Then in six four, you need proceedings going forward. And so you institute, you start the proceedings by serving your petition on the uh, on the agency, doesn't that harmonize six three and six four? Uh, respectfully, no, Your Honor. Um, I, uh, I it would apply the term that I believe uh, Justice Thiessen recently did in an article about um, legislative archaeology. 
Uh, and if we look at what this statute looked like before the amendment, you have to institute the appeal by serving the agency in the solemn way that we do to initiate an action, personal service, certified mail. And 1463 says you've got to get that done in 30 days. 14. And by the way, I'm not interested at this stage in legislative intent. I'm just asking whether by the plain words of 6.3 and 6.4, can we harmonize them? Your Honor, I think it would do violence to the definition of the, of the verb to institute to say that you've got jurisdiction without instituting the appeal. Yeah, but institute is referring to proceedings for review. Which is essentially the same phrase in 1463, review under section 1464 to 1468. Well, no, help me out on that. I've got the statutes in front of me. Yep. Um, 1463 says any person aggrieved by a final decision in a contested case is entitled to judicial review of the decision under the provisions of those sections. And then it says a petition for writ of certiorari by an aggrieved person must be filed. So once you filed it under 6.3, then don't you need, you need proceedings. You need to start proceedings under 6.4. Isn't, isn't that a way of interpreting these two statutes together? That we will start the appeal and then we will start then the we'll appeal have proceed, proceedings? Then we'll start proceedings. Um, Your Honor, respectfully, I don't think that is a, uh, a fair um, reading of the phrase proceedings for review under these sections, either as it's used now or as it used to be used before uh, the amendment to the statute. We wouldn't be getting this strained reading of the two phrases under the old version, the legislature never amended 1464. In fact, the history reflects they never even saw 1464 when they were looking at it. Uh, and at that time, what it meant was, this is how we start the proceeding. You wouldn't think twice about that this is the initiation of the appeal. Yeah, but we had an amendment, and I'm trying to give some effect to the amendment and read, read 6.3 and 6.4 together in light of the amendment. The, to, Your Honor, to give effect to the amendment, um, we look at the plain language and what the amendment did was add a requirement that in addition to serving the agency, which is still required to institute the proceeding, we must serve the parties under a deadline. Under the plain text of the, of the law, that's the only, two the only difference between pre and post amendment of the statute. Didn't the amendment to 6.3 disconnect the 30-day deadline from 0.64? Um, I, I disagree, Your Honor, because of the, the phrase to institute. And I believe I've uh, you, explained that uh, repeatedly now. Uh, I, I don't I, have I, more to add. To, I understand. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Your Honors, we have... Um, the cardinal rule of construction that says the statutes must be read in context. We have the statutory rule of construction that says we can't disregard the letter of the law in order to pursue its spirit. Um, this court is going to be issuing a ruling that applies to judicial review by certiorari of executive agency decisions in this, in this state. This case is about a simple mistake. A, uh, as a litigator, a but for the grace of God go I kind of a mistake. The Midway Pro Bowl served the city as though it was the agency. That was a mistake. Everything that follows is an attempt to salvage that one case. We shouldn't 
play gymnast with the statutory language in order to save the case. What we should do is apply the plain language of the statute to institute a proceeding means to inaugurate, to originate that appeal. Uh, accordingly, uh, the city respectfully requests that this court reverse the decision of the Court of Appeals uh, and restore um, that requirement to commence review of uh, agency decisions. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Counsel. You have 10 minutes for rebuttal. Uh, Mr. Morphew. Thank you, Your Honors. If it pleases the court, my name is John Morphew from Morphew Law Office, appearing today on behalf of the Displaced Business Midway Pro Bowl. All Midway Pro Bowl is seeking today is a decision from this court that allows its underlying claim of eligibility for relocation benefits to be decided upon the merits by the Court of Appeals. And in order for that to happen, the only thing this court has to do is conclude the Midway Pro Bowl met the jurisdictional requirements contained within 14.63 for the Court of Appeals to have obtained judicial review of that decision. And that really is the only rule of law that Midway Pro Bowl is seeking from this court. This court only has to conclude that 14.63 is the only statute that contains a jurisdictional requirement, by, uh, a jurisdictional deadline, excuse me, by which a relator must file and serve its petition for writ of certiorari in order for the Court of Appeals to have jurisdiction over the, its appeal. I don't think, if we look at these two statutes, 14.63 and 14.64, I don't think this matter is nearly as difficult or as complicated as the city is making it out to be. I think Justice Lilhog clearly identified this when discussing the distinctions between those two statutes for the purposes of obtaining judicial review and also talking about instituting the proceedings for review under 14.64. All right, I, I understand you like that argument, <laughs> um, but now let me press you a little bit. Okay. What's, what's the plain meaning of the word institute? To begin, to start, to put into motion. I mean, there's a lot of different ways that you can look at it, and I think we cited some of those in our, in our brief. I don't know that necessarily it means first, um, as the city would, would uh, seems to suggest. But doesn't, doesn't the word start suggest it's the first thing? But I think that's if you're looking at start from the purposes, it depends on how you're looking at start. Is that for the purposes of the Court of Appeals obtaining jurisdiction, or is it for how the proceedings for review go under the rules of the civil procedure, civil appellate procedure, excuse me, in 14.64? And I think that's yeah, the key, I, I think I that's see, the key I distinction. I see in 6.4 in the first paragraph, it does refer to the matter shall proceed in the manner provided by the rules of civil appellate procedure. That does suggest that proceedings occur after you, after you commence the uh, petition or you file the petition. That, that's correct, Your Honor. I think in how we look at it is under 14.63, it's simple. For the Court of Appeals to obtain, obtain jurisdiction, the only thing the relator has to do is file its petition for writ of certiorari with the Court of Appeals and serve it upon all parties within that 30-day period. That's it. And then 
when we look at the first paragraph of 14.64 in totality, then you serve the agency, in this case the OAH, then those proceedings for review will then go under the rules of civil appellate procedure, meaning that's what triggers the various deadlines under Rule 115.04 of the rules of civil appellate procedure in terms of ordering the transcript, transmission of the record, the briefing schedule. That's what that's talking about, is the Court of Appeals can have jurisdiction under 14.63, but really none of the triggering deadlines for how that matter will proceed under 14.64 happen until after the OAH has been served. So I, one question I had though is if you look at the third paragraph, which says after, I mean basically if you read the paragraphs in order, you institute the proceeding and then copies of the writ shall be served on all parties. The third paragraph says cop, after you've instituted the proceedings by filing with the, uh, serving the agency and then filing with the clerk of appellate courts, then it goes on to say, then copies of, the, well it doesn't say then, but if you read in order, copies of the writ shall be served personally upon all parties to the proceeding. But you've already done that. That's, I think that's referring to the issued writ, the writ that's been, been issued by the Court of Appeals, not the I petition. See. Okay. That's a different requirement. Wait, Council, what do you make of the second paragraph of point six four, which is talking about um, when the, it, it does reference the 30-day period provided in section 14.63 when it begins to run. Does that suggest that the first paragraph is tied into the 30-day requirement in .63? No, I, my recollection is that only is applicable in regards to whether or not a request for reconsideration has been submitted. Um, and so I don't know that, that that's really applicable. I, in this particular, I, I, I guess that's my, my only recollection of that particular stat, part of the statute. Do you, do you have the statute in front of you? I, don't, I, I have it in my file. I can grab it if you'd like. If you would. Okay. Okay. Right, and it, it, it does reference the 30-day period, but it specifically references in, in regard to the procedure in 14.63. Um, yeah, and doesn't that then suggest... That there is a 30-day requirement in does, that statute. Doesn't that then suggest that the um, first paragraph of 0.64 is subject to the 30-day period provided in section 14.63? No, because it's specifically referring to what, only in those cases when a request for reconsideration has been filed um, then the 30-day period for service of the writ or the filing in the service of the petition with the Court of Appeals under 14.63 doesn't begin to run until after the reconsideration period has expired. I don't think it, that's, it's only referencing the petition for the writ of certiorari upon in 14.63. I don't think it's talking, referencing at all to the first paragraph in that. Again, in paragraph two, go to the last sentence that starts with nothing herein. Mm-hmm. It makes a reference to the institution of a review proceeding under sections 14.63 to 14.68. Doesn't that use of the word institution kind of support Mr. Michael's argument about the meaning of the word instituted in the first paragraph? Oh, okay, nothing here. Um, 
it's not a model of legislative clarity. I think I can say that. Um, in, in, You'll get no argument here, I don't think. <laughs> so, sorry about that. Um, but no, I don't think that that has... Um, I mean, there in this sentence, institution seems to refer to getting a review proceeding underway. Now, what, what a review proceeding is, is that 1463, is it 1464? It's, it's kind of hard to tell, isn't it? It is hard to tell, but I think the, 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 the reference up above in the first paragraph to the rules of civil appellate procedure do distinguish the first paragraph from the second paragraph, meaning that um, the review uh, under Fort, I, frankly, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that that's what it's, it's there is a distinction that, that, that is made there in regards to the specific reference to the proceedings for review occurring under the rules of civil appellate procedure is different than for the proceedings specific when when 14.63 specifically says judicial review i think that that's the more specific language for how uh, a relator obtains judicial review or obtains the court of appeals obtains jurisdiction in one of these cases so and I think, like I said, I think that that's, it's, it's really not as difficult. And I think even in the, 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 the Dennis versus Salvation Army case that the city uh, cites in their portion of the argument, you know, one of the things this court talked about in that case was, you know, the quote, effect review. <clears throat> the relator had to take all the steps necessary to effect review. The same thing is true in this case. To obtain judicial review, a relator only has to do what's required in 14.63. And in that case, in the Dennis versus Salvation Army case, this court refused to cobble together, <clears throat> excuse me, cobble together two different portions of the appeal statute in that case to excuse the delay in the service of the cost bond. And that's essentially what the city's asking this court to do in this case is cobble together the requirements of the two statutes to try and somehow harmonize them to come to a conclusion that the 30-day requirement is the same in the one statute as it is in the other statute. Can, can I ask, has this court ever ruled that the OAH is actually a state agency for purposes of these reviews? Not that I'm aware of, Your Honor. I, that's why this proceed, this whole thing was a bit of a, as far as I know, I mean, there was one other appeal of a relocation benefits matter once the new statute, the, the, the ALJ statute was passed. And I think the appeal, the, the certiorari in that case was very similar to what happened in this case, but the issues weren't raised in that particular case um, for whatever reason. And even before the 2013 amendment, did, has this court ever ruled that OAH is an agency for purposes of service and all these things? Not that I'm aware of, no. So not that I know of. Um, but in regards to the, the, the Salvation, the Dennis versus Salvation Army case, I think the city's, what the city's request is doing is it, or the city's request sort of flies in the face of the unambiguous and mandatory language in 14.63 for the purposes of obtaining judicial review. And I think as uh, the court has noted that that creates a trap for the unwary. Um, and so that's why you know, we would argue that the statutes aren't ambiguous. We don't have to resort to the purposes of, uh, we don't have to resort to statutory construction and this court can apply the plain language in those two statutes to come to the conclusion that Midway Pro Bowl uh, did properly serve the parties for the purposes of the Court of Appeals of obtaining jurisdiction. 
But if this court does determine that the requirements of these two statutes are ambiguous, then it can consider the legislative intent behind 14.63. And we cited to the record, we cited to the, the limited testimony in regards to the, to the, to the reasons behind the, uh, the change in the amendments, but, or to the amendment in 2013, but clearly the court of the legislature, the Office of Administrative Hearings didn't want this exact scenario to happen. They didn't want to have to be served with a copy of, they want to have to become a named party to these appeal proceedings, which makes sense. The OAH is not a party. Uh, this isn't like when uh, a state agency uh, gets a decision and then um, a state agency reviews the decision of an administrative law judge and issues the final decision. Under Minnesota Statute 117.52, Subdivision 4, the decision of the ALJ is the final decision that gets appealed. So there really is no reason in these types of appeals for the OAH to be a party. And, you know, like I said, they don't want to be named party of their appeals. They didn't want a policy stake in the outcomes of these appeals. The OAH wanted to boost public confidence in the objectivity of its decisions, and it also didn't want the Attorney General to have to get involved in appeal of its final decisions. That's why it approached the legislature and said a change has to be made to 2013. It, does, it just fundamentally doesn't make any sense. If we get to the issue, or if we get to statutory construction, it, it just doesn't make any sense to sit there and say the legislature or the OAH would have gone out of its way to have 2013 amended to remove it from the 30-day requirement, but keep it in 14.64 as a requirement that they be served within the 30-day appeal period. It seems it's, it's redundant and pointless. There would have been no reason to modify 2013, or would have been no reason to modify or amend the statute in 2013 if, it want, if, if the OAH also wanted to be served as a party to these proceedings under 14.64. Um, yeah, Council, in, the, in point six four in the third paragraph, yep. about two-thirds of the way through, it says, the agency and all parties to the proceedings before it shall have the right to participate in the proceedings for review. So it looks to me like the legislature may have wanted to get OAH out of the loop, but this, uh, this sentence leaves them in. Well, it says they, they have the right to participate. I suppose... I'm not once again to disagree that it probably things could have been cleaned up and that's and in bottom line I think that's really what the city probably and, and not even just the city but maybe all acquiring authorities in these relocation appeals maybe they need to go back to the legislature and say this 14.64 needs to be cleaned up because it doesn't work in regards to how these maybe all of it doesn't work in regards to these decisions where the decision of the ALJ is final and that that also assumes agency means OAH, which right. everybody is assuming here, and I don't know why we have to assume that. I, I, I can't disagree with that. I, I think that's the same thing. I, why would the OAH be the agency? They're not the, they're, they're not the, they didn't acquire the property. They didn't force anybody to move. Their decision, they didn't render no decision regarding MPB's eligibility for relocation benefits. Yeah, Justice Thiessen may be right. On the other hand, it does say the agency and all parties to the proceeding before it. That suggests there's a pre-existing proceeding, and that suggests it's an administrative proceeding before OAH. Well, no, I think what it's saying is that it shall have the right to participate in the proceedings for review as it's talking about the appellate review. And I suppose theoretically the OAH could file a motion to intervene as a party. I suppose that's how you could harmonize that to say, okay, if there's 
a particular interest that the OAH may have in one of its final decisions, I'm not sure what that hypothetical would be, but theoretically, if they had some sort of interest that they felt needed to be defended, um, it could intervene as a part, it could file a motion to intervene at the Court of Appeals and say, we want to participate for whatever reason that might be. I, I don't know, but I think that that's what it does. It gives the... Well, that language is also inherently redundant because if DHS is the agency and make the, ultimately make the final decision, they're both the agency and the party. Correct. And so I, I don't know that you can read much into that. Right, and I think that's why 90% of these appeals, it's never going to be an issue because the agency is the party, right? And, and so they're going, to be, they're going to participate because they're going to be served. Um, DHS, the DNR, MnDOT, one of those types of agencies is always going to participate as the agency and or the party. And I, and I think that, get to Justice Lillehock's point, I don't want to repeat it, but just to say that I think that that's what it's saying is, is if we want to try and harmonize it, the OAH could intervene, it gives it the right, if this court concludes that the OAH you know, or some other court in another case were to conclude that the OAH is an agency for these relocation benefit appeals, um, it would have the right to intervene. So uh, that's, that's how I read that. So I, getting back to that, to conclude on the issue of the statutory construction, I think that that's, if this court does conclude, I think you look at the plain language, and you get into statutory construction, we look at the legislative history, and I just, given the legislative history and the purpose behind it and these limited appeals, I just don't see how anyone can conclude that that, that, the, stat, that the second statute is a 30-day requirement because it begs the question of why they would have ever amended 2013 in the first place. Um, and one of the issues I also want to touch upon is a little bit about, you know, this separation of powers argument, and, and, and the city alludes to it, is that uh, the review of these executive agency decisions, that's really not what's occurring in these types of appeals. There is no separation of powers implication in these types of, of appeals where the decision of the administrative law judge is the final, is the final decision being, being reviewed. In 14.69, which isn't applicable to these types of appeals, it limits the scope of judicial review of the final decisions that are made by these agencies, whether that be MnDOT, DNR, DHS, whatever. And in that, the Court of Appeals has to give deference to the decision of the agency, as this court noted in the NRA Blue Cross Blue Shield case in 2001, Deference is given to these final decisions of the agencies because of their expertise and specialized knowledge in the field of technical training, education, and experience. And this deference is rooted in the separation of powers. The OAH has no particularized knowledge or experience or training in administration of the Minnesota Uniform Relocation Act. It's just sitting as a decision maker, making a conclusion regarding whether or not a displaced person is eligible for relocation benefits, and if they are eligible for relocation benefits, the amount of benefits for which they're eligible to receive. There's no, the OAH doesn't, doesn't administer it. MnDOT is the lead agency in the state of Minnesota for the administration of the Minnesota Uniform Relocation Act, not, not the OAH. Um, and as happened in this case, the separation of powers was followed in this case. Midway Pro Bowl applied to the city for seeking a determination of eligibility. The city denied that, as it has a lawful authority to do. Midway Pro Bowl then requested that the city initiate contested case proceedings. The city did that. 
an ALJ was appointed. The ALJ issued, a, uh, issued the final decision regarding the denial of eligibility for relocation benefits. Then the Court of Appeals has the right to review that decision to see if, a, a, if an error of law was made. So that just goes to show that in this particular case, there is no implication of the separation of powers because this is the final decision that's being reviewed by the agency, the decision, of the, or excuse me, by the OAH, the decision of the ALJ. There is no deference that has to be given. We don't have to worry about the Court of Appeals or this court overstepping its bounds in regards to stepping on the toes of some agency. And I think if we really look at it, you know, I think affirming the decision of the Court of Appeals really is what would affirm the separation of, the, of powers because this court is performing its traditional role of applying the statutory language to a particular situation. Counsel, how do you respond to opposing counsel's argument that's, that's speaking generally, and we said this in Dennis versus Salvation Army, we strictly construe the certiorari statutes? Absolutely, I don't. I don't disagree with that, and I, that's 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 the rule of law, black letter, and Midway Pro Bowl did that. I mean, it it did what it was. But if you look in Dennis versus Salvation Army case, there are different requirements for what the for what the relator had to do for the court. Of yeah, that to, was under Section 176, the workers' comp statute, and that correct. that was different. Correct. But I'm just talking about the general principle. How does the rule of strict construction cut for or against your client? I think it cuts for us because we did what we were supposed to do within that 30-day period. I haven't reviewed all of the certiorari appeal statutes, but at least the ones that I've looked at in regards to the applicable case law that's been cited and a few of the others that I've looked at, whenever we're talking about strictly construing that, we're always talking about statutes that have a temporal deadline in them, like a 30-day or a 60-day requirement for jurisdiction to be obtained. As long as a relator complies with that, 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 that 30 day or 60 day or whatever that temporal requirement is and, and, and does the steps that they're supposed to do within that statute, the Court of Appeals has jurisdiction over that appeal. And whether that, like in Dennis versus Salvation Army, there was a cost bond requirement, uh, service of the issued writ requirement, filing requirement for the petition, those sorts of things, that's a little bit different than the requirements in 14.63. But like I said, if you look at whether it's the, the, the discrimination law statutes, the workers' compensation, unemployment benefits, uh, things like that, they all have a, a, a deadline requirement for jurisdictional purposes. But when you say that you, you had strictly complied, I mean, what you're really, because we have an acknowledged error here in terms of the form of the writ, right? I mean, the Court of Appeals in its order said it needed to be corrected. And Correct. You, you presumably have done that, and it's now been served in its appropriate form. But um, a, a, another way to state that would be you complied with 14.63, but at least not initially with 14.64, right? Uh, well, no, respectfully, because there is, once again, in 14.64, there is no requirement by deadline by which the, the issued writ has to be served. I understand that, but but what I understand, the way I read the Court of Appeals order, and I think you, or Court of Appeals published opinion, I should say, um, uh, and as I understood what you just said a couple seconds ago, you agree that there needed to be a correction made, right? Correct. Yeah, no, I, I don't disagree that, that <laughs> Justice Thiessen's concerns aside, that, that it was, the initial writ was directed at the city of St. Paul, not upon the OAH. Now, if you look at 14.64, 
it doesn't say, if I have my copy, my handy-dandy copy that handy, um, I think it just says that copies of the writ shall be served personally or by certified mail upon all parties to the proceedings. It doesn't even say to whom the writ even has to be directed. It just says copies of the writ have to be served. Um, and yes, the Court of Appeals ultimately decided that it was, should have been directed to the OAH and not the city. That was corrected, um, which is consistent with this court's decision in, you know, even though it's a different statute, the, Gon the Goncior case, Goncior versus alternative staffing, that the appeal requirements in that statute were almost exactly the same as in 14.63. The, the writ was uh, not served until after the expiration of the 30-day deadline. This court determined that that was not a jurisdictional requirement because it wasn't within the, the time period required by the applicable statute in that case. And then if we look at the Polk County Ambulance Service case, that's a Court of Appeals case, but which this court denied review, um, the Court of Appeals cited the Gonsior case and concluded that even though in that case, you know, the, the, the failure to serve copies of the issued writ does not defeat jurisdiction. And then the Court of Appeals went on to say, quote, because the APA has no such requirement, jurisdiction vests upon the timely filing and service of a petition for certiorari. So, I think that matter has already been resolved in regards to 14.63 and 14.64 is that, yeah, maybe there was a, the issued writ, the initial writ was issued incorrectly or named the wrong party, but there is no jurisdictional requirement for the issuance of the writ or who the, the writ even has to be directed to in the statute in this particular case. So I think that both of those cases um, resolve that. So I think you know, in the final analysis, you know, the, 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 the simplest answer to this question is, is really, you know, how this court resolves this issue. You look at the temporal requirements, the 30-day requirement in 14.63, you apply the plain language of that statute. That confers jurisdiction upon the Court of Appeals. You look at 14.64 and say once the writ's been issued, or once the OAH has been served with a copy of the petition for writ of certiorari, that triggers the appellate proceedings under the rules of civil appellate procedure. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Uh, Mr. Michael, you have 10 minutes for rebuttal. Your Honors, I'd like to uh, briefly address uh, Justice Thiessen's question about whether this court has ever held uh, that the OAH is an agency, uh, because I think it gets at the heart of the matter. It gets at the heart of what uh, the legislature was trying to accomplish with its amendment and what the legislature utterly failed to accomplish with its amendment. The, um, the fact of the matter is we still have one rule book. They made a change to that one rule book. They didn't do anything specific to OAH. 14.02 defines agency, and OAH clearly fits in there. And if there was a statute for OAH, it's chapter 14. It's, it's the agency. Um, and the uh, city could never be the agency under chapter 14 because it doesn't have statewide jurisdiction. Pretty sure it doesn't want statewide jurisdiction. Um, so. The now, arguably, the Uniform Relocation Act, NURA, which incorporates it, could create the city or the, whoever the acquiring authority is as the agency. I mean, because they're adopting 
those rules, right? That's absolutely correct, Your Honor. And before uh, Mura was amended, also relatively recently, uh, there was no provision to send these decisions, these contested cases, to OAH. That was a relatively recent amendment. There are any number of ways to skin the cat to get OAH out of the, um, the process of being served. Uh, but what OAH wanted in front of the committee that it appeared at, I believe Representative Freiberg said for about two minutes, uh, was we don't want to, uh, we don't want to be a party, we don't want to have to have the AG appear, we don't want to be served. 1464 still says you're going to be served. 1464 still says we're going to provide a copy to the AG. Um, the the vocabulary we're struggling a little bit with here is the word party because we have two different kinds of parties. We have parties to an appeal and then we have parties before the agency below. And under 14.63 and 14.64, we have three groups of people being treated by the statute. You have the aggrieved party, the aggrieved person, you have the agency, and you have parties before that agency. The the statute requires uh, and addresses all of them. Agency must be served. And, and by the way, um, there was some talk about the statute doesn't say to whom the writ should be issued. Um, it's a writ of certiorari. Certiorari is well established as what it means, has been for quite a while. It's statutory in this state. It is this court's review of the decision of the lower tribunal. It's the decision maker who it always has to be uh, directed to. It couldn't possibly be anything else. Which uh, fits with 14.02 subdivision 2's definition of agency, which includes a uh, state tribunal. Correct. Yeah. Um, uh, Your Honor, I was trained long ago not to use up all my time just because I have it. Uh, and unless the court has any further questions, I'll take my seat. Thank you, counsel. Thanks to both counsel for the help you provided to the court in this matter. This case is submitted. We'll issue an opinion in due course. We're in recess. Thank <laughs> you.